So if you want to ask questions, just raise your hand and I'll ask you to come forward. Tell us your name and then ask your question. Bill doesn't have to come here. Bill can ask from there itself. Yes. Sorry, I've thought of this question again and again. How does the Vedantic standpoint uh, compare with the scientific standpoint of the Big Bang? The scientific standpoint of the? Big Bang. Of the Big Bang, yes. Today in the talk, the question was, how does the Vedantic standpoint compare with the scientific standpoint? And today we talked about the origina origination and the destruction of the universe, the origin and cessation of the universe, and the different points of view. Do you remember when I was talking about no origination, no cessation, the different points of view available in the, um, the spectrum of Indian philosophy? The first one was what's called the Charvaka point of view, where they talk about the primacy of the material universe. The material universe is that what, what really exists, and consciousness is a product, is a byproduct, and an epiphenomenon of that material universe. When matter organizes itself into life, nervous systems, brains, somehow mind and consciousness evolve. So you are a byproduct. What you consider yourself to be the sentient being which you are, you are riding on this vehicle. Body mind. This is the real. Uh, uh, this is the reality which is generating you as a byproduct. When this body and mind dies, you are gone. You are created by this, and when it dies, you are gone. So this is the materialist point of view, and mainstream science today would still subscribe to that. So that's why those were atheists, uh, the new atheists, Dawkins and um, Christopher Hitchens and. Uh, uh, Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, many of them, they would say death is the end of everything. Why is death the end of everything? Because what is everything after all? It's matter. It, it's a physical body which has come together in this way and produced this sentient being you call yourself. That's the scientific point of view. The religious point of view is just the opposite. Do you remember I mentioned consciousness, the name can be God or whatever you call it, produces this universe. That is the theistic point of view. Some all-powerful omniscient consciousness which we call God produces this universe. So in all theistic religions, God is called the creator of the universe. In Hinduism, Srishti, Sriti, Pralayakatta, the, the, the projector of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the destroyer, ultimate dissolver of the universe, and again and again in cycles. Or in Christianity or Islam, God is the creator of the universe. That's another point of view. But the Vedanta point of view is not, not, neither of these. There's a third point of view, which is the Sankhya, Yoga, Jaina point of view, where neither produces the other. Consciousness is eternal and fundamental, and nature, time, space, matter, energy is also eternal. It goes through cycles, but it still always was and will be. And they interact with each other. Both are real. The Buddhist would modify that and say both are there, but they are empty of, they are of any real nature. And the Vedanta point of view is both are not real. One only is real, which is consciousness, in which appears the other, what we call 
time, space, matter, energy, our own bodies and minds. So the, this is the difference between the different points of view. The typical religious point of view is just the opposite of the typical scientific point of view. Matter and from there consciousness and we as conscious beings emerge. And so we've come from matter, we'll go back to matter. Nothing else exists. So actually the possibility of a future life, of um, consciousness without physical matter, all those things are ruled out by, by materialist science. Therefore religion becomes impossible actually. How can you have religion without something after death? If at death everything ceases, finished. Vedanta is none of these. Vedanta says, the consciousness which is ever experienced, in that alone, what you call the other, time, space, matter, energy, bodies and minds, they are all experienced in consciousness. They arise in consciousness, they are experienced in consciousness and they subside back into consciousness. You cannot really speak of something being produced from consciousness. Consciousness can only experience, illuminate. It does not produce a separate thing from itself. Which side would you come down on? I would come down, surprise, surprise, on the Vedanta side. <laughs> why? If you say why, give me a neutral answer why. Not because it's your tradition, not because um, you know, people like Ramakrishna or Vivekananda vouch for it. Give me a, a, something, a, a universal answer, something that everybody can uh, relate to. I say, see, our entire experience of life begins with consciousness, is in consciousness and ends with consciousness. All the objects that we experience in life, they are in our experience. You don't start with an object, you start with an experience. What I mean by that is, look at this microphone. <clears throat> if I ask you what is it, the first response would be it's a microphone. But is that true? Isn't it more true to say it's a microphone in your experience? You are seeing it now, right? It's not just a microphone by itself. You are there and you are seeing it. In your vision, you see a microphone. That's a truer account of your experience, is it not? Yes. In our life, in everything that you do, in science, in religion, in art, in uh, theism, atheism, Vedanta, whatever you do, you all do it in consciousness, in awareness. What right do you have to speak of something apart, entirely apart from your awareness? There has never been such a thing. One principle, I'll tell you in Hindi, then I'll give a rough translation in English. One Vedanta teacher told us. Anubhav se shuru karo. Jad se shuru karoge to jad hi milega. If you start with the insentient, with an object, you will get an object. <laughs> If you start with an objective explanation of this, you will get an objective explanation of this. This is made of atoms and particles and, and it has been put together uh, in a factory and here is the object. Notice how cleverly you are leaving consciousness out of the whole thing, though the whole thing is being experienced in consciousness. What Vedanta says is, stick to the truth. Don't stick to half-truths. Now I have to be bold about this. When you say, I'm taking an objective view of this, what do you mean by that? I'm leaving my consciousness apart, out of it. That's half a lie. You have not given a true account of, of your experience. Your experience must always include consciousness. 
Is it not true? Whatever you do, science, religion, politics, business, enjoy, suffer, live, die, all of it is experienced in con consciousness. Is it not true? Dwell on this simple fact. Advaita starts from there. It gives primacy to consciousness, not to the object. To put it even more simply, science or materialism reduces everything, including consciousness, to the object, to the thing. And Advaita does the opposite. It reduces everything, all, con all objects, the material universe, to consciousness, which you are. Yeah. Can you come here and tell us your name? Tell us your name and ask you. Thank you, Swamiji. Uh, my name is Advait. Uh, Advait. <laughs> oh, how, how how happily named. You're the perfect person. We should ask you questions. Advait means non-dual. <laughs> I have uh, two questions. Uh, first one is: If everything, including uh, Vedanta, is an appearance, how can true knowledge be attained by? studying it and secondly how do we see brahman as existence itself not just something which exists but as existence itself mm. all right you're asking two questions but you can't your name is not two <laughs> right so these are things which must be carefully considered what is meant by um everything is appearance including Vedanta, then how can we attain true knowledge by Vedanta? Uh, these have very clear meanings in Vedanta philosophy, but they're very easy to misunderstand. That's why I say one must carefully uh, examine them. What Vedanta means to say is, you are the truth yourself. You are Satchidananda, the truth yourself, not this body and mind. But our problem is that... Under the influence of ignorance, we do not know the fact about ourselves that we are Satchidananda. And in that Satchidananda alone, this body and mind are appearing, but we do not know that it's appearing in Satchidananda. We just think, this is what is there, and so I am this. It's an error that I am making. We are all making this error that because the body and mind are experienced, immediately we jump to the conclusion, I am this thing. It's based on an error of my real nature, about my real, it's based upon ignorance of my real nature. Ignorance of my real nature as Satchidananda leads to the error, I am body-mind. Now, so far you're with me? What Vedanta tries to do is simple. It does not try to reveal your real nature to you. Surprise, surprise. Vedanta does not try to reveal your real nature to you. It cannot. Because your real nature is beyond words, beyond conception, beyond thought. So how can something which is words, what is Vedanta? Words. What were we doing all this time? Using our intellect, hopefully. Thinking, trying to understand. But what you are trying to understand is beyond thought. Suppose if the definition is correct. So, it's like saying, atoms. There are atoms in this room. But science tells us the atoms are too small to see. Now it's futile to keep trying to see very carefully. You can't because by definition they're too small to see. Similarly, by definition it's beyond words and beyond intellectualizing. 
So what does Vedanta do? If it cannot reveal Brahman to you, what does it do? What is it doing? What did we do today? It removes misconceptions. What Vedanta does is, it does not reveal the reality itself. It reveals, it removes our ignorance about the reality. It does not tell you, you are this. It tells you, you are not the body, not the mind. <coughs> we saw today, how you are not attached to the body, you are not bound by the body, you are not bound by the mind. That's what it shows you, it frees you from the, the ignorance that I am... Let's put it very precisely. Vedanta frees you from the ignorance that I am not Brahman. Shankaracharya put it in a very nice story. In, in Aitariya Upanishad Bhashyam, he gave a nice little story. A man was scolded by his guru. His guru told him, scolded him and said, You're not a human being. Amanushyatvam, you're not a human being. Typical scolding, sometimes teachers or parents scold kids. You're not a human being. And this man was very depressed. He was sitting there. Then another wise person comes along and says, Why are you depressed? My guru said, I'm not a human being. Then this wise man said, I'll help you. Wait. Look at all the non-human beings. Rocks. Are you a rock? No. Plants. Are you a plant? No. Um, lower animals, you know, like lizards and snakes. Are you a lizard or a snake? No. Higher animals like cats and dogs and monkeys and elephants. Are you one of those? No. So he, one by one he exhausts the entire category of non-human entities. And he agrees, I am none of them. Then the only remaining option? Human. You have to be human. You have to realize that you are a human. Shankaracharya says, after realizing that I am not a not human, after that if this man says, so what am I? Then nobody can help him. <laughs> In this case, in the story, you can straight away say you are human. Because human is something you can express and you can see and you use language to express. But it means when we are talking about Vedanta, all that Vedanta does is neti neti. <coughs> not this, not that. And hopefully, at one point, the truth will flash upon you. Because the truth is ever present. Vedanta does not have to reveal Brahman to you. You, Brahman, are always self-revealed. Continuously. When? Now. Where? Here. Who is Brahman? You. But what stands in between is our ignorance and our error that I am not Brahman. And this is removed by Vedanta. Neti neti. Not this, not this. You know what? The way the Vedanta teachers taught, I didn't say it today. This very verse which we did. Na nirodha na chotpatti, na baddha na chasadhaka. You know what they teach? Utpatti riti na. The universe was created. No. This is the meaning of neti neti. Nirodha iti na. The universe seized. No. Baddha iti na. That you are in bondage. No. Sadhaka iti na. You are somebody doing spiritual practices. No. Mumukshu itina, you are somebody who seeks liberation. No. Mukta itina, you are somebody liberated. No. This is neti, neti, neti. In this process, you are supposed to stumble upon in a flash, get it. 
that I am the ever liberated Turiyam. Right now, always was, am, will be. I did not have time to mention moksha, liberation. I will take the occasion of this question to answer that. Liberation, moksha, has been understood in different ways by Indian philosophy. In fact, I have a talk coming up in June in San Diego in the Museum of Art there. And the talk is about moksha. Um, the conception of moksha in Indian philosophy. In different ways. You know what the materialist says? It's the materialist who does not agree that there is anything called moksha. But if you press the materialist, the charvaka, what is moksha? You can predict what the materialist will say. Death of the body is freedom. You die, that's it. You're free. What does the Jaina say about moksha? They have the conception of higher and higher spheres. You can see how that, this led to the heaven conception later on. It's a very ancient philosophy. Older than Buddhism also. So the enlightened person in Jainism it is called Kevalin. Literally meaning the alone. The Kevalin. Rises to the highest sphere. So it's a kind of freedom in space. In a rarefied spiritual space no doubt. But the idea, the conception is a space based concept. Freedom in space. One way of looking at the Buddhist idea of Nirvana is its freedom in time. How? There is a progression in time, a series of flashes of vijnana, of, of consciousness events. When this ceases, when it stops, you are free. Nirvana means deeper nirvana, like the flame of a lamp goes out, you are free. What is the flame of the lamp? It's a continuous burning of the lamp. Similarly, like a continuous burning, like a fever, we have this um, individualized consciousness which is burning and flickering lifetime to lifetime when it ceases you are free nirvana which means free but look at the language my point here is only one word when it ceases it's a time-based conception of freedom at one time it will come to an end this progression the theistic idea of freedom is both space and time heaven is a place where you will go after death after salvation when God permits it when and where heaven is not here heaven is not now then there when you go and live with God and in Hindu theistic approaches in Vaishnava uh, philosophy there are beautiful descriptions of heavens where you live in the same sphere, the same place as God, live close to God, in eternal devotion to God, singing the praises of God, so and so forth, the proximity to God. That's moksha, freedom in theistic religion. In Advaita too, we have different conceptions of freedom. Krama mukti, jivan mukti, videha mukti. What is jivan mukti? Those who get enlightenment right now, if you get realized, I am Brahman, you become free while living. The body will continue living. You are those one of those enlightened masters. The body continues living for some time. Vivekananda says about enlightenment, no more is birth or death. Um, go thou from place to place. Help them from Maya's veil. People will set them free. So this is the life of an enlightened person while living. It's called Jivan Mukti. That is taken as the goal of Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta. Gaudapada cuts that apart also. Uh, 
There is another thing called Videya Mukti. Videya Mukti means bodiless freedom. This enlightened person, at one time the body, because of the past karma is exhausted, the body drops off. Drops off means it dies. So the person already free while living, while the body is living. When the body dies, he's still free. But from our point of view, he was free in the body, now he's free, bodiless freedom. He's no longer present before us in a particular body. That's from our point of view. And the third conception of freedom in Advaita is called Krama Mukti. Those who do not get knowledge in this life and yet have done a lot of spiritual practice, they go on to higher heavens and attain enlightenment in Brahma Loka. This, it said the highest possible heaven. So it's a sequential evolution. You're not enlightened here. But after death, you don't come back to this world. You go to some other rarefied place of existence and finally you get knowledge there and you get freed there. So three conceptions of freedom. Jivan Mukti, Videha Mukti, Krama Mukti. Free while living, the best. Which will ultimately culminate free while dead. Dead means the body dies. And the third one is, if you don't get any of these, then the third one you can hope for is sequentially, over time you get freedom. And you know what Gaudapada says? All three conceptions are trouble and nothing but trouble. If you can get rid of all these conceptions right now. All these three conceptions belong to whom? The, that person who imagines himself to be an individual being seeking freedom. That person who is analyzing the world in this way and I will become free while living in this body. All delusion. According to Gaurapada, neither Jivan Mukti, nor Videha Mukti, nor Krama Mukti, you are free all the time. Why don't you stick to that? Why do you keep slipping off into this or that? Postponing it as this goal to be attained. So that's how Vedanta works. I just indicated it at the end of the talk. Vedanta says, having proved everything to be false, then you ask, what about you, O Vedanta? Are you false or not? Yes, I too am false. But having dissolved the problem of the world, before that, if you take Vedanta to be false, then you, there's no way out. Similarly, after that also, if you hold on to Vedanta, then also it's not liberation. In the, there's a saying, Yatra Veda, Veda Bhavanti, where the Vedas become no Vedas. It's only in Vedanta which, which can make such a bold statement. Which other religion or philosophy can say about its own holy scripture that it becomes um, no, no scripture at all? No. You must reach, each of us must reach that enlightenment where even the Vedas are no Vedas. What else did I want to say? Oh, a similar thing you find in Madhyamaka Buddhism, Shunyavada of Nagarjuna in, Buddha, in the philosophy which say the Dalai Lama follows in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, Nagarjuna says, Shunyata, the doctrine of emptiness, it is something similar to the doctrine of falsity of the world in Advaita. So Shunyata, the doctrine of the void, the teaching of the void, is meant to free you from the world. Thinking that the world is something real to be grasped or given up. Both are dissolved when you realize it is empty. But he says, one who misunderstands shunyata to be the highest teaching and holds on to that, for that person there is no help. The emptiness teaching will set you free from the world. But then you must not grasp onto the emptiness itself as some kind of teaching itself. 
you must let that go also and then what advaita ved say you yourself shine forth as the truth buddhism would not go so far would just keep quiet at that point all right so this is the method of vedanta now your second question was if you remember uh yeah is it, uh, how do we see brahman as existence itself and not something which exists ah. how do we see brahman as existence itself and not something which exists brahman is to be seen as consciousness itself not something you are conscious about let's start with that then i'll come back to existence it's easier to start with the consciousness aspect what happens is brahman or consciousness or turiyam whatever you call it that shines upon the mind thoughts emotions ideas we experience start experiencing together with the with the mind it shines upon the sensory system then we begin to see and hear and smell and touch and we objectify i can see this i can hear that i can smell that i can taste this i can think that i can remember that thing i can feel that thing thoughts feelings memories sensations sights sounds tastes all of them are objectified they are objects to what to knowledge so you know something okay with me so far this is in sanskrit called vritti gyana knowledge consciousness plus the body mind system produces knowledge it continuously changes depending on the object you will have different kinds of knowledge you cannot know brahman like that what it means is you cannot know brahman as something you can see or hear or smell or taste or touch um, or think or speak or remember or feel why why because ultimately it is brahman which is behind all thinking hearing smelling touching feeling that light alone with the body and mind is illumining all of this brahman is not an object out there an unknown object which you have to illumine it's rather the light which illumines all objects that cannot be objectified it's like with a flashlight you are seeing things in the world you can see many things in the world but the flashlight itself if you try to turn it around it's gone behind <laughs> you can't see it with that light that light itself illumines everything now then what do you do you are that light all you have to realize yourself is that i am the light by which i everything is experienced that's the way it is to be realized what's the technique very simple technique you can try it right now can all of you see this flower can all of you see this flower yes. this flower is an object and the experiencer of that object are your eyes in a very naive way let's start with your eyes you are seeing the flower step 1 step 2 blink your eyes how did you know that not with the eyes with your mind you know you noted that the eyes blinked i can see i cannot see i need glasses who knows that not the eyes themselves the mind so now the mind is the one which is the seer and the eyes become the object with me so far step 2 no they have i lost you no. <laughs> go further back Are you aware of the thoughts in your mind? Just think two plus two is four. Did you think that? Huh? You are aware of your own thoughts. Two plus two is four. Yeah. Huh? That thought, you are aware of it. What is aware of that thought? 
That which is aware of the thought is the seer and the thoughts become the seen. Step 3. There is a witness inside your mind. You are the witness of your own mind. And yet that witness can never be objectified. Because whatever you think is revealed by that witness. Think about this. It's not so easy to grasp. It's very, very subtle. Usually, most people get stuck at the point. You know what question they will ask? Isn't it the mind thinking about itself? Answer to that is, follow this. Whether the mind is thinking about itself or the, whether the mind is thinking about the world or whether the mind is not thinking at all in sleep or meditation, all of these are known or not known. They are known. By what? Even when you are not thinking about the witness, it's still known. What is still known? The mind is still known. What is knowing it? When you feel tired and dull and not aware or you feel sleepy, you feel sleepy. Look at the language. What is it that reveals that dullness, tiredness, sleepiness? That consciousness, it is not known by an act of knowledge. It is rather behind all acts of knowledge. It shines forth in all acts of knowledge. That is pure consciousness. Exactly in that same way, now look at existence. All these things which exist, do you notice the altar exists, the flower exists, is, is, chair is, um, the table is, the fan is, the building is, the feeling of isness. That is called existence. It's not a thing which exists, but it is pure existence itself. And that cannot be objectified. The only way you can objectify that pure existence is with an object, <coughs> with, a, with a thing which exists. You might see at this point, pure existence is an abstraction. Things exist. But where is pure existence? You know, it's ex for an Advaitin, it's laughable. It's exactly like saying, <coughs> Ornaments exist, but gold itself, there is no such thing. Gold is the reality of all the ornaments, right? Advaitin says, gold alone exists. Ornaments are an abstraction. Similarly, all things which you think they exist, actually it is existence itself, with names and forms, which from an Advaitin point of view, they are Maya only. The existence, the substance is real. Now put these together. Pure consciousness which you intuited within yourself and pure existence which you feel everywhere, you will see this pure existence is not outside. It is you the pure consciousness. The pure existence is not here. It is rather you the pure consciousness who is also pure existence who lends your existence to this object. And so this object says, you can say, it is. It is the name and form isness comes from you. That isness and that consciousness are one and the same thing. Sat and Chit are one and the same thing. Alright, very good question. Advait. Uh, the gentleman at the back and then Pankaj will come. Yes, come here. <coughs> of course, your name Advait has all the answers. Uh, hello Swamiji, my name is Manish. Um, the question I have is um, if consciousness itself is beyond 
is not um, cannot have a feeling like feelings are outside of consciousness mm. happiness sadness then how is consciousness the source of blissfulness or sorry or how is consciousness's nature blissful all right it sort of contradicts right if consciousness if the feelings uh, did you tell us your name oh manish manish so manish is asking if feelings are outside consciousness let me stop you right there nothing is really outside consciousness look at your own experience when you feel a burst of pleasure a flash of pleasure you feel a flash of pleasure isn't it something that you feel in your awareness doesn't it come in your awareness does it exist outside and then your awareness goes and contacts it and reveals it no it's something that arises in your awareness it's not outside your awareness all feelings all thoughts all images everything that we experience is in our consciousness basically gorapada denies the external existence of things now that's one thing so bliss to be experienced must be experienced in consciousness if there is no such thing as there was a great deal of happiness but i did not feel it how can you say there is such a thing there was a lot of happiness in my mind i didn't feel it if you don't feel the happiness there was no happiness oh my mind is very sad but i i'm okay i don't feel it so i'm okay then you are not sad there is no sadness there at all feelings are always they have to be directly illumined by consciousness to have any existence at all are you with me the feelings cannot exist like this thing separately from me if i see it there if i don't see it it's still there no not like that feelings must be directly experienced to even exist so that's one thing but the bliss aspect of consciousness when you say ananda it does not mean a feeling that very infinitude of consciousness it is immortal consciousness immortal existence this infinite existence consciousness this itself is called ananda you see what is misery it is a limitation misery comes from limitation the upanishad says nalpe sukham asti there is no real joy in the limited bhumai va sukham the infinite alone is bliss so this very infinite nature of ourselves as consciousness that itself is bliss now that is recognized in objects outside something which i like when i experience it it gives me a flash of pleasure that pleasure which i see outside is actually the same ananda which is inside it's just reflected like a little shankaracharya says like spray from an ocean the ocean is inside you what you experience outside as happiness or bliss is a spray from the ocean it's like foam from the ocean which is already inside you which is you not inside you it is you yourself the example which sri ramakrishna gave of the dog which buried a bone and would dig out the bone and chew on the bone it's old dry bone it would cut its inner lip and blood would flow and the dog would taste it and say oh what a tasty bone <laughs> it's it's tasting itself its own blood in the same way we are tasting our own ananda in food and drink and music and science and relationships and all of this outside in success in all the things which give us euphoria outside all that euphoria the joy comes from within and that's always there and then hold true even for misery then no misery is an obstruction of that 
Okay. See, that experienced joy, when you want to experience it, it must be in the mind. If you are in deep sleep, you can't experience that, that particular joy of eating a cookie or something like that. So you need the sense organs, you need the cookie, you need the mind. All of that together gives you a flash of pleasure. That comes from within and is experienced as a movement in the mind. When that is obstructed, you get a feeling of pain or ple- uh, of, of misery. That's what misery is. Misery cannot exist without the mind. Pleasure also cannot exist without the mind. But the bliss itself which you are, that exists without the mind also. It's like this. Um, I use a mirror and I see my face. The reflected face in the mirror is like the bliss, like the pleasure we experience in the mind, in the world. And the original face is like Ananda, the Satchidananda, the real nature of the Atman. Now see the difference. To see the reflected uh, face, I need a mirror. To experience joy in the world, I need the mind. That reflected face depends a lot on on the mirror. Convex mirror, concave mirror, your face will look funny. Right? Similarly, depending upon the experiences you have in the world, you will get different grades of pleasure or joy. But it's the same joy within which is being reflected outside. Another thing. The reflected face comes and goes with the mirror. If you have the mirror, reflected face. No mirror, original face stays all the time. Similarly, the ananda, the bliss you get in the world, the same ananda is reflected outside in a vritti of the mind, movement of the mind that comes and goes. Not only comes and goes, it is subject to increase and decrease. The reflected face can be beautiful, can be nice, as good as your original face or worse depending on the quality of the mirror. It's reflected in one way in a pool of water, reflected another way in a broken mirror, reflected another way in a dusty mirror, reflected another way in a shiny mirror, in a platinum mirror, reflected in different ways. Depending on the medium of reflection, it will keep changing. It's subject to increase and decrease, coming and going, superior or inferior. Original face, just the same. Ananda, pure bliss, your your real nature, always unchanging. And last, most important feature. The reflected face is seen. Original face is not seen. What you see is a reflection of the original face. The original bliss, ananda, your real nature, is not an experience. Vivekananda said, look how profound his comment. It's not that it is happy. It is happiness itself. What is happy? The mind becomes happy when it's reflected there. So... That ananda reflected in the mind is the pleasure you get in the world. Comes and goes, increases and decreases, and it is an experienced ananda. The bliss, the original Satchidananda, it does not come and go, it does not increase and decrease, in fact it is infinite, it's limitless. And it's not an experienced ananda. All anandas are experiences or limitations of that one, but in itself it's not an object you like. Who will experience it? It's itself the experiencer. You say, oh, if I don't experience it, then what good is it? The next question. (laughs) It's like saying, if I can't see my original face, what good is it? What you see is a reflection. Once you realize it's a reflection of my original face, your desire to continuously keep reflecting it in a mirror will disappear. You will not feel that, oh, if I don't reflect it in a mirror, it's gone. No, it's not gone. It's always there. 
it does not depend on the mirror the mirror depends on it for reflection reflecting the uh, forming the image right once you know it's my original face it's always that you will not feel like reflecting it always similarly once you know that you are ananda you will not feel that if that happy feeling in my mind is not there so i am unhappy you will not try to keep reflecting it in your mind i will try to enjoy this eat that meet that person go there this vacation that selfie yeah <laughs> you continuously trying to get that ananda you realize you are that infinite bliss there will be no particular effort that i will try to get these various experiences to get ananda from myself you may or you may not once that effort ceases you will find mind is suffused with bliss sukham atyantikam yattad buddhigrahyam atindriyam this is in the gita in samadhi in the deepest meditation you get the limit of bliss the 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 highest possible bliss suffuses your mind but it's not something that you get through sense organs buddhigrahyam it is experienced internally more than this you'll have to experience it for yourself thank you <laughs> thank you we'll take one more question yes pankaj had a question we'll end with that question come is the f- food ready do, do you know right yes yeah, right samji my name is pankaj and uh, the question is in the middle of the talk you dis- uh, discuss about like you're sitting next to ganga and you see a dead body flowing and other garland so basically <laughs> like the action is like now connect with your uh, experience and then you you say oh this is my experience uh, like this happening since the childhood like uh, we eat a candy and then we now oh candy is very nice and something you eat a bitterness then you don't like it so that experiences keep piling and piling and piling and piling even though still at this age also that's happening so i mean to go away from that uh, that bondage actually that's what my question is i i mean partially you answered the question in the last question but some methodical way we can follow yes the the path of gyana is this first you must hear this truth nobody tells you this truth in the world that you are not your experiences they don't taint you they come and go in your light which rem- remains pristine you are that light you are that person sitting on the bank of the ganga and so many things float by on the river they don't belong to you you don't belong to them people come experiences come objects and gadgets and places come and go and float away and disappear our own thoughts and body the body comes and changes and ages and will disappear one day you are unaffected you will remain i quoted raman marshi somebody died he said it is good your your existence is indubitable you cannot be doubted why are you trying to maintain it in a particular body so the body will also come and go in its own good time produced by karma so the first thing is to hear this most powerful already it is working you will say i have to do a lot of sadhana now i have heard it maybe but that you have heard it is the biggest sadhana already you are well up on your path just by hearing it today it will vivekananda said truth is a corrosive substance of infinite power 
once you hear it something deep within the mind recognizes its truth this is what i was waiting for depending on my own karma the quality of my mind the way i have developed it over time it will sink in and work at its own level but it will never go away it will keep on working till you are led to liberation practical way a lot of practical ways karma yoga bhakti yoga raja yoga gyan yoga they are all practical ways of sadhana this is where sadhana kicks in where it it improves the quality of the mind which receives the teaching then the clarity comes in the mind it's not the mind which is going to be free also the mind just shows you your own ever present freedom right now the mind is showing you that you are bound it's not true it's telling you a lie vedanta clears up sadhana clears up the mind till it reflects the truth back to you and you say i always was free you look into the mirror and you see shiva always free that story i'll end with that story one person did lot of sadhana meditation on shiva and did not get the vision of shiva you know, god in the form of shiva one day he had a dream that um shiva came in the dream and he said why can't i have a vision of you it's just a dream and then shiva said all right tomorrow you will meet me i'll come and meet you tomorrow how look for the headless man I'll come and meet you as a headless man. He said, "All right." And he started looking, but everybody has a head. <laughs> everybody has a head, until ultimately he looked at himself. <laughs> no head. The headless man. The headless man is you yourself. The headless person. You are Shiva. That was the. That was the thing that. I've always been with you, God. When when you you hear in theistic religion, God is always with you. You don't see God. Advaita explains it so directly. What does it mean? God is always with you. You are none other than God. Who is always with you? You. But if you directly say you are God, you will think that oh, this person, I am God. Either if you are normal, you will reject it. That's stupid. I am not God. If you have a tendency to megalomania, you will accept it. I am God. <laughs> Both are wrong. <laughs> This individual being is not God. That reality is ever present. It is you, and it shines forth. But sadhana clears the mind, prepares the mind, and that's why it's necessary. Very good. We had had a productive session, and this is also going to go on the internet on the YouTube. So this is a second of. a series of three possibly four lectures on the mandukya karika um the next one is called no mind that is uh, in at the end of may we'll give, have one more lecture and possibly a fourth one in june also because there are four chapters of mandukya karika